الحمد للہ الحمد للہ الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنحتدی لولا ان هدان اللہ وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له له الحمد وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن محمدا عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه وخليله أرسله الله للناس نذيرا وبشيرا محمد رسول الله والذين معه أشداء على الكفار رحماء بينهم لقد كان لكم في رسول الله أسوة حسنة لمن كان يرجو الله واليوم الآخر وذكر الله كثيرا من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد رشد ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا أوصيكم ونفسي أولا بتقوى الله وطاعته وأحذركم من عسيانه ومخالفة أمره أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الحدي حدي محمد وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار يقول الله عز وجل وهو أصدق القائلين في كتابه الكريم الذين قال لهم الناس إن الناس قد جمعوا لكم فاخشوهم فزادهم إيمانا وقالوا حسبنا الله ونعم الوكيل Brothers and sisters, committed Muslims. It is thought that Muslim history and Islamic history are one and the same thing. In point of fact, however, In the 1400 years of Muslim history, it has often diverged 
from Islamic history. Islamic history is the history of prophets. Islamic history is the history of struggle against tyranny, oppression, and the expansion of poverty. During the past 1400 years, there have been myriad occurrences when there was a convergence between Islamic history and Muslim history. And the latest example of that convergence occurred, 20, occurred 38 years ago last week. And the convergence of this particular Muslim history with Islamic history that we are referring to is the Islamic revolution in Iran. It can be said that the Islamic revolution restored and revitalized the Islamic identity. And so what do we mean by this statement? Obviously the Islamic identity has never gone away since day one of the creation of Adam salam. It has gone through its own fits and starts through its own ebbs and flows. At times it has been prominent and at times it has been barely noticeable. However, it has never been in a state of non-existence. And so 38 years ago, this particular event in Islamic Iran began to restore and resuscitate the Islamic identity. When we speak of restoration, we mean that there was a representation of Islam before the revolution and then there was a qualitatively different representation of Islam after the revolution. And just as a reminder of the socio-political history at that time, we might remember that 1979 was still in the middle of the Cold War. There was a first world which was represented by the United States, by the European Union, 
and in the background by the occupiers of Palestine. And then there was the second world. And that was led by the Soviet Union or the USSR, the so-called communist world. To the east of Iran at that time was Pakistan. And Pakistan itself was coming out of a coup, of, out of a coup which took place in 1978. And the former prime minister of that country would be hanged in no less than a year after the Islamic Revolution took place. To the west of Islamic Iran were Al-Iraq and Syria. Both of them being governed by some incarnation of the Ba'ath Party. And the Ba'ath Party, as we might remember, is sort of an Arabic incarnation of socialism. In Al-Iraq itself, the would-be leader of that country for the next two decades was being coached and being elevated in rank by the CIA. To the southwest of the Islamic Republic was Egypt. And the former president of that country, a person by the name of Muhammad Anwar al-Sadat, was coming out of Jamal Abdul Nasser's legacy of persecuting and butchering the Ikhwan. And he had made Egypt into the first card-carrying Arab member of the Zionist imperialist establishment with Camp David. And within Iran itself, as the revolution was about to reach its fruitful beginnings. The supporters of the Shah had decided to develop or come up with an interim government, a so-called caretaker government that would guide the future of the people from a condition of monarchy to a condition of representation. And the head of that caretaker government was not chosen by the people, but he was nominated and appointed by the supporters of the Shah. And all of us might remember that his name was Shapur Bakhtiyar. Now this is not an incidental or a coincidental choice. Mr. Bakhtiyar happened to be an anti-Shah opponent. 
In fact, he had served over six to seven years in prison during the time of the Shah. And so he was regarded to be part of the resistance. But were it not for the impeccable leadership of Imam Khomeini, the people of Islamic Iran may have been duped by the choice of this particular interim prime minister. And so before Imam Khomeini came back to Islamic Iran on February 1st of that year, 1979, he issued a directive and he said that we rejected the system that supported and financed and coached and harbored the Shah in Iran. And when we rejected that system, we rejected all of its decisions and we rejected all of its appointments. And so he said that the interim government is as illegitimate as the government of the monarch who happened to be ruling this country in a dynasty called the Pahlavi dynasty. Another thing to remember is that this particular Islamic revolution was led by an 80-year-old man. Look around you. Try to recall all of the 80-plus year old people that you know that are in your acquaintance. And you will see that most of them who have made it up to that age have already given up on life. That their struggles just to make a living, to keep their heads above water, rob them of their health and their vitality. But nonetheless, this Islamic revolution was not a typical revolution. And this is just another one of its characteristics. An 80-year-old man had the sense of purpose. He had the sense of urgency. He had the sense of direction to take a people who were just getting a sense of who and what they are into a new and an uncertain world where they would be required to lead. And accompanying his return to his country and to his people as normally happens in seminal occasions like this. The fog was lifted.
a sort of a sort of clarity began to descend upon the world and the immediate clarification that took place was that all of the extremists who had been hiding around, behind various religious labels or various labels of human rights and democracy and divine commitment all of them came out of the closet and all of them were found to belong to one ummah al-kufru millatun wahida kufr is one denomination and so wahhabism imperialism and zionism all came out to one side. They were all on one side. And on the other side was the nascent pulse of the Islamic entity and the Islamic Republic in Iran. And so not only did a clarity of forces take place, but there was also a clarity of direction. The one direction was represented in its lead by the occupiers of Palestine. And that direction is a direction of racism and exclusivism and exceptionalism. A direction that makes some people superior to others that they classify as inferiors. That allows some people to have the privileges that the life and the earth have to offer. And that deprives the vast majority of the people on this earth of those same privileges and those same benefits. The opposite direction which was represented and advocated by Islamic Iran is the one of Islamic universal, universalism and Islamic inclusivism where everybody is welcome under the big tent of Islam where everybody has a contribution to make where all human life is valuable And with this in mind, one of the first things that the Imam did, for he knew that sort of a rhetorical exposition of the directions the world is taking is not going to be enough for his people. And so one of the first things that he did in order for his people to understand the directional course that they are on, that their identity is placing them on, to help them understand who and what they are, he did something very practical. And he came out and said, 
that as far as the foreign policy of Islamic Iran is concerned, that it is going to be dedicated to the strategic objective of liberating the Holy Land, of liberating Palestine. And what he was saying to his people in particular and to the world of Muslims in general, that we are going to stop taking directions from our enemies. We are going to be setting our own course in life. When you have a strategic foreign policy, that, make, that means that you make a key set of decisions which shapes all of your other decisions. That you are now going to be a master of your own destiny. Nobody is going to be deciding that on your behalf, regardless of how much military and economic and political power they have. That our deen and our prophet and our Quran is going to decide our destiny. Brothers and sisters, this was a monumental step for the vast majority of the Muslim world at that time. They were used to reacting to what the power players in the world were doing. And they were very, very comfortable in living in a reactionary type of identity. And once again, this is something that distinguishes the new direction that Islamic Iran was now going to take. Our thesis in the beginning was that the Islamic revolution restored the Islamic identity. Now let's briefly talk about the meaning of the word Islamic. Before the Islamic revolution, Islam was just an afterthought. Nobody was thinking of Islam in terms of it establishing or being the basis of a civil society. Nobody was thinking of Islam in terms of an Islamic army. Nobody was thinking of Islam in terms of a representative body politic. Nobody was thinking of Islam in terms of an economic program. Ten to twelve years before the Islamic revolution occurred, one of the key proponents of an Islamic totality, Sayyid Qutb, was hanged in Egypt. The head of the Jamaat Islami, Mawlana Maududi, would not live for another year after the inception of the Islamic Revolution. The head of Hizb al-Tahrir, Taqiyuddin al-Nabahani, also expired in 1979. And so Islam at an ideological level 
at a philosophical level, at the level of ideas, at the level of legitimacy for a civil society. Nobody was talking about it at that time. But then after the Islamic Revolution, in the past four decades, what has been the main topic in academia, in the media, in policy circles, for four decades running, nobody has been able to talk about anything but Islam. Everybody wants to know what is this Islam? What is it that animates two billion people in the world? What is it that every time these Muslims are given a chance to represent themselves that they choose the Islamic parties? How can we combat this? How can we turn back the clock so that these Muslims are not thinking about living their Islam in a social and a political dimension? And you know what I'm talking about. Any of you who are old enough to have lived before the revolution, you know that Islam was an afterthought. However, even so, Even though everybody has been talking about Islam, the Muslims and their enemies alike. Unfortunately, the Muslims have not been as, as engaged as they need to be. And this has given space to the enemies of the Muslims to come in with their own definitions of what Islam is and what it isn't. And so in this past 40 years or so, a number of stereotypes about the Muslims have emerged or they have been given new life. Universities and foreign service departments and political science departments, they're delving deep into what Islam is and they're trying to give Islam and its systems their own definitions, their own descriptions. And other than a few scholars here or there, the Muslims are largely absent from this picture. And so it becomes a little difficult for Muslims to stand up and define what Islamic or Islam means. But in a nutshell, what we are saying when we are talking about Islamic, is that we are referring to the relationship between men of God and truth. And what we are not referring to is the relationship between men of power and the church. And when I'm talking about the church, I'm using that word in a generic fashion to mean church, masjid, synagogue, temple, what have you. Imam Khomeini was a, was a man of truth. And thus the truth is what conferred legitimacy upon his policies. 
The truth is what conferred legitimacy to Islamic social relations with other non-Muslims and with other Muslims in particular. Men of God, on the other hand, what confers legitimacy upon them is power. Thus, if you have more power, you have legitimacy. And the only need they have for any aspect of the truth is for the men of the church to come in and bless their wars of occupation, their ethnic cleansings, and their weapons of mass destruction. And so we have the Imams in Arabia who go to the court of the king and give out Islamic justifications for the destruction of Yemen, for the killing of women and children. And we have priests and ministers here in Washington who go to the White House and give their blessings to wars of occupation, to the use of depleted uranium against innocent civilians, to the dislocation of millions upon millions of people. And we have rabbis in Tel Aviv who go and give their religious blessings to the genocide which has been committed against the Palestinians, to the erasing of that history, to the imprisoning of to over 10,000 innocent people, to the dislocation of over 750,000 others, not to mention what is happening at this point right now. And so when the Islamic revolution in Iran occurred, there was a seismic shift from an Islam of rituals to an Islam of purpose, to an Islam of centrality in the way that the world functions and the direction that the world is taking. And so now, once again, let us go back to our original thesis that the Islamic revolution in Iran restored the Islamic identity. And so now let us briefly talk about the meaning of identity. One approach that could be taken when discussing identity is the theological one, where we sustain the meaning of identity with ayat from the Quran and from the words of the Prophet. And this discussion and this development needs to take place.
Again, it cannot be minimized. However, on this occasion, we don't have time to go into an exhaustive development of the Islamic identity. And so for the purposes of this talk, I'll choose just a little bit of a simpler approach to help us understand the meaning of who and what we are and what our responsibilities are. And in order to refer to that, the context that I am going to use to build my case concerns the murder of innocent African Americans or unarmed African Americans by a law enforcement authority that has been accused of being racist. As a little bit of background, and so far as law enforcement in the United States is concerned, FBI statistics and FBI records demonstrate that in rural areas in the United States, that one out of two members of law enforcement units happen to be white nationalists, white supremacists, or white racists, or so-called sovereign citizens. And, the, and in the more heterogeneous areas of the country, in the cities, it is said again by FBI statistics that as many as one out of four of law enforcement officers happen to belong to white racist or white nationalist cells. So depending on where you live, anywhere from 25 to 50 percent of police officers in uniform or plain clothes happen to belong to white nationalist or white racist outfits in the country. As far as the U.S. military is concerned, the FBI says that as many as 30% of U.S. soldiers also happen to belong to white nationalist or white racist groups or have white nationalist or white supremacist inclinations. And then couple that with the following. There have been asset seizures by law enforcement and by federal authorities in the United States. And these assets and these asset seizures are related to those who have been accused of terrorist crimes or drug-related crimes. Now mind you, many of these people have only been accused. They have not been indicted and they have not been convicted. But just the accusation 
there are regulations in the federal law books that give them the license to go in and repossess the assets of those who have been accused of drug crimes or terrorism related crimes. And last year, the asset seizures had reached $5 billion. The total amount of burglary and theft in the United States is only $3.8 billion, which in a sense makes the federal government the biggest and the largest thief in the United States. Now, African-Americans, they know all of this. They know that police departments are infested with racists and white nationalists. They've known this for generations. They don't have to be given a litany of figures to know what's going on here. Unfortunately, the immigrant Muslims, they're completely unaware of this dynamic. And hence, a lot of calls have been coming from the immigrant community upon the generic issue of justice. That it is possible that some of these crimes were committed by people, by, by law enforcement officers who did not happen to be racist. And that we ought to pursue justice to the ends of justice. And so now as we talk about identity, We have to understand that as Muslims and as African Americans, none of us were born yesterday. These same arguments about justice and about impartial justice, they have been made in the past. And thinking Muslims and thinking African Americans have posed counter arguments to these calls for generic justice. And I'm just going to go over two of these arguments as I conclude this talk. The first argument comes from Howard Zinn, the famous counterculture historian. And he says that your rights on paper, meaning your constitutional rights, are not the same as your rights in fact. That you could have a whole bunch of rights on paper but they don't necessarily tra translate into rights in fact or rights on the ground. But what's important is the execution and the practice of rights in fact, not rights on paper. And he says further that your rights in fact depend on the leaders. That what translates the rights on paper into rights in fact, into rights on the ground, is the quality of the leaders that you have. And if the leaders are sincere to their responsibility, then you have a chance that your rights in fact are the same as your rights on paper. But if your leaders are corrupt, and your readers, and your leaders are selfish, and self-interested, and only concerned about the so-called national interest, then it is typical and it is par for the course that your rights in fact 
are never equal to your rights on paper. And the United States has been very good about talking about your rhetorical rights, but not about your rights on the ground. They've sung a heavy song about the, all the rights that you have. They've tried to talk the walk, but they haven't walked the talk. Just because you have an expansion of law, whether it's civil rights law or anti-discrimination law or any other kind of law, it doesn't mean that you have a sea change of mentality on the ground. It isn't law that delivers moral rectitude towards God. It is moral rectitude towards God that delivers law. The second counter-argument to this generic and sort of simplistic argument on justice was given by a one Stokely Carmichael. And he said, as he was talking about civil rights, he said that civil rights legislation is for white people, not black people. I don't need, he said, I don't need, be, need to be told by some government or some president that I am free or that I have equal opportunity with this person or that person. I was born free. I was born with all the rights that I would have while I was alive. I was endowed with my rights by my God. Nobody out there has to tell me that I have rights and that I have equality. And thereby the civil rights legislation is directed at those people who would dispossess other free people of their rights. Civil rights legislation is not meant for the people who have been oppressed. Civil rights legislation is meant for the oppressor. And once again, brothers and sisters, an expansion of law on the books doesn't necessarily designate that the mentality that led to racism is going to change. The point that needs to be understood here, brothers and sisters, and this is the point that we need to walk away with, that all of these counter-arguments, even though they are posed by non-Muslims, are Islamic. And they are Islamic because all opposition to oppression, to injustice, to tyranny, to the expansion of poverty, All of those arguments are in the model of prophets and thereby all of those arguments are Islamic. And so the Islamic revolution in Iran, the inclusivity of the Islamic revolution in Iran has made a place for non-principled non-Muslims within its domain of activities.
And so you might ask some of you who are still doubting that these people who made these arguments were non-Muslims. That they lived before the inception of the Islamic revolution in Iran. So how can we say that their arguments are Islamic? And the response to that question is, is that when they lived, Islam in its dynamic, social, political, military sense was not around. But that's the simple argument. The more pertinent and the more cogent argument is the following. That all of these counter arguments belong to a culture. A culture that resists tyranny and oppression and injustice. And the leading advocate of that culture in our world today, the most preponderant voice of that culture in our world today is Islamic Iran. And because of that, Iran can appropriate the developmental history of that culture. And because of that, again, and under the aegis of that consideration, Islamic Iran has been standing tall in the face of all manner of assaults against it. It has been standing tall in the face of 38 years of economic sanctions, in the, in the face of 38 years of political isolation, in the face of 38 years of threats of military annihilation. And during that time, it has inspired directly or indirectly liberation movements all around the world. Egypt cannot say that. Saudi Arabia cannot say that. And for that matter, the United States cannot say that. The European Union cannot say that. And the occupiers of Palestine cannot say that. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, the meaning of Islamic identity? This culture of opposition, which has been framed by the Islamic identity, it has a past, it has a present, and it has a future. And the Islamic revolution in Iran has seamlessly bridged that past with its future. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we are winning the war of ideas. Our ideas are fresh. Our ideas are new. Our ideas are incontrovertible. They are unimpeachable because they are based on the truth. And the truth needs no human validation. The truth needs no armies. It needs no weapons of mass destruction. And it needs no terrorists. The truth is self-validating. All it needs is your human engagement. And because we are now winning the war of ideas, the future is in our hands to shape. يُرِيدُونَ لِيُطْفِئُوا نُورَ اللَّهِ بِأَفْوَاهِهِمْ 
والله متم نوره ولو كره ولو كره الكافرون هو الذي ارسل رسوله بالهدى ودين الحق ليظهره على الدين كله ولو كره المشركون اقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم فاستغفروه يغفر لكم فاسترشدوه يرشدكم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله Brothers and sisters We live at a time where there is no meaning to truth The only thing that's important are agendas. And when truth becomes a casualty of agenda, the next logical casualty is human life itself. And to wit, one expression of this extreme mentality that the Islamic revolution came to liberate humanity against. That just yesterday in Pakistan, A Sufi masjid and mausoleum was bombed and 75 innocent Muslims were killed. The claim of responsibility was given to ISIS. In Baghdad yesterday, a car bomb exploded and killed 75 innocent people. Once again, the claim was given to ISIS. In the last 48 hours, the Saudi military bombed two funeral processions in Yemen. In the latest one, 10 innocent people were killed. Nine of them women and one of them a child. One of the things that the Islamic revolution in Iran helped us understand is that whether these killings are coming from a state level or from a non-state actor, it is all the same people. 
The Islamic revolution made us understand that there are two directions, two distinct directions in the world and they don't cross. There is no convergence between them, there is nothing in common between them. The one is inclusive, the one is welcoming, and the one is liberating, and the one is looking forward to a bright future. And the other one is all about occupation and ethnic cleansing and murder and debt slavery and it is looking forward to a darker and a darker future. And once again the Islamic revolution clarified these actors on the world stage for us. And in this regard I would remind you of a statement by Imam Ali when he found himself in a similar kind of situation where everything appeared to not make sense. But of course everything made sense to him and he was there as a teacher to clarify things for his companions and his followers. And so one of his companions approached him with this level of confusion. And so the Imam said to him, إِنَّكَ رَجُلٌ مَلْبُوسٌ عَلَيْكَ فَإِنَّ الْحَقَّ وَالْبَاطِلَ لَا يُعَرَّفَانِ بِأَقْدَارِ الرِّجَالِ اِعْرَفِ الْحَقِّ تَعْرِفْ أَهْلَهِ وَعْرِفَ الْبَاطِلِ تَعْرِفْ أَهْلَهِ If I were to translate, Al-Imam Ali said to his companion, You are a person who is cloaked in confusion. For matters of the truth and the falsehood are not given by the potentials and the actions and the behaviors of men. Familiarize yourself with the truth and you will know its adherence. Familiarize yourself with the falsehood and you will know the false. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan wa rizuqna al-tiba'a wa arina al-baatila baatilan wa rizuqna al-jtinaabah اللهم اغفر للمؤمنين والمؤمنات الأحياء منهم والأموات إنك قريب سميع مجيب الدعوات اللهم ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم
والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر في هسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم عباد الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولا ذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة